This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest, Bad Sisters, Bad Sons edition. It's Wednesday, September 14th, 2022. On today's show, the incomparable Sharon Horgan co-creates, co-writes, and co-stars in Bad Sisters, a dark comedy about four sisters in Dublin who plot to rid their fifth sister of her evil husband. The series is on uh, Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, I loved it. And then My Son Hunter is the first feature film, if you can call it that, from Breitbart, the right-wing media company. It's a lurid expose about the president's infamous fail son and his equally infamous laptop. And finally, we discuss the complex public emotions and iconography of Queen Elizabeth II with Slate's own icon, June Thomas. Joining me today is uh, Julia Turner, the deputy managing editor of the LA Times. Julia, hey. Hello, hello. And of course, Dana Stevens, the film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana. Hey, Stephen. All right, guys. Well, uh, let's not stand on ceremony. Let's, uh, Let's make a show. All right, well, Bad Sisters, it's a series on Apple TV+. Plus. It's part Big Little Lies, part James Joyce's The Dead. It's a dark comedy, a thriller, a satire, and a richly drawn portrait of an Irish family and the community it's embedded in. I kind of love the show. Co-created by co-stars and was co-written by Sharon Horgan, She of Catastrophe, and many other wonderful shows and movies. She plays one of five Garvey sisters, four of whom are tough, intelligent Irish women, one of whom has had a lot of the tough and almost all the life drawn out of her by her POS husband, a passive-aggressive sadist. Her four sisters decide to take matters very much into their own hands. They decide to relieve her of said POS and by any means necessary. The show also stars Eve Hewson, Daryl McCormick, and I think drawing the hardest assignment, it's fair to say, is Anne-Marie Duff, who plays Grace, the brutally put-upon wife, In the clip we're about to hear, the four quote-unquote bad sisters muse upon ways to dispatch John Paul, the creep of a husband, and one of the sisters happens upon the setup for the whole show, really. Let's listen. People get killed every day. What's that mean? I mean, why not give nature a helping hand? All our worries will be over. (laughs) I often think about punching through that soft spot in his head. Right through to his brain. Jesus, PB. <laughs> I feed him to the Hurley's pigs. Bury him piece by piece in their mushroom beds. More shit for him to grow out of. <laughs> Fine, I'd tamper with the brakes of his shitty Volvo if I knew what the fuck I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> Shove him into deep, dark water. Feed him to the sharks. Let the seagulls feed up his eyes. eyes out. Beat him to him on skewers. Shove him out of a plane. Kill the prick. Kill the prick. I fucking hate <laughs> All right, Julia, let me start with you. I picked up from a little pre-show chit-chat that maybe you don't share my love for this TV show. Do you care to explain? Oh, that's not quite fair. I mean, it is so watchable. I devoured all of the five existing episodes. Sharon Horgan is so great. Don't you just, every time you see her on screen, you just wish you could hang out with her for the rest of your life, that she was like your sardonic best friend. She's like, just so charismatic and charming. Oh my God. Um, I want to be the meek younger brother of the five bad sisters, like or uh, the four bad sisters and the one put upon one. Yeah, it's absolutely delightful company. I mean, for one thing, you've got sort of scenic 
mystery, unspecified Ireland locations, a lot of drone shots of beautiful greenery and people driving on the wrong side of the road. Sorry, Ireland. Um, then you've got the all five sisters give fantastic performances, I think. They're all really compelling. They're well-drawn. They're very specific. The kind of abiding love and petty squabbling of their sisterhood is so well-drawn, so well-written, feels so earned. The thing that I'm curious about tonally and interested to see what the show does with its finale is I can't quite tell how morally serious the show is, which is maybe a kind of pinched way to evaluate a show that is just so much fun and maybe it's a broad black comedy and who cares. But the portrayal of the relationship between the sisters is not broad. It's so real. It's so grounded. And the portrayal of the prick, John Paul, the kind of self-righteous, gaslighting, vicious, sadistic, unctuous, um, priggish, pervy. I mean, like there's, he, it's so broad. Like he's not a subtly bad dude. He's like a dial a jerk. Like literally every jerkish variety of man is embodied in him in a way that feels so broad. Mm -hmm. It's barely believable. And so I had trouble with the toggling between his unbelievable cruddiness and then the sisters believable relationships and so I felt like the show kind of is tonally swinging and I can't tell how morally serious it is about the the terrible thing the quote-unquote bad sisters set out to do hmm. Dana are you bothered by the potential lack of moral seriousness the contrast between these very humanized very individuated sisters and this kind of cartoon big bad wolf of a husband? I mean, now that Julia puts it so clearly, I think she did put her finger on something that has slightly bothered me about this as even as like Julia, I gobbled up every available episode and wished there were more and largely because of Sharon Horgan, who I have to say, I mean, she co-wrote most of the episodes. She's obviously the co-creator of the show. I wish she was a little bit more the star. <laughs> I think my first critique would be too many sisters. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're good characters, and if you stick with it, each one gets her own backstory and motivation and, and characterization in the episode. But it takes a couple episodes to even figure out how many there are, what their names are. It's really confusing because two of the actresses are named Eve and Ava, and that's also the name of Sharon Horgan's character. I always just felt like I was in this welter of real and fake women that I was trying to keep straight for the first few episodes. And I might have done with a little bit more protagonist based action of getting more time with um, with Sharon Horgan, who also is, you know, the ringleader of the sisters. She's the oldest uh, in the backstory. She's sort of the, the mother figure because she brought them up when they were all orphaned. Like The Bear, another show about a big, sprawling, chaotic family we've talked about recently, this, this show could do with a little bit more deep backstory. I mean, I don't need necessarily flashbacks, but who were their parents that brought them up in this lovely seaside house that Sharon Horgan now lives in? I'd like to know a bit more about, you know, their education, their class background. What did their parents do for a living? Maybe that will all come out. But, you know, I'm now halfway into a 10 hour season and know absolutely nothing about sort of how they came to be the women they are. Um, but I guess that's unrelated to, to Julia's question about 
about the moral standing of the show. Here's what I'd have to say about that is one clue to the tonal oddness and the sense that we don't know whether this is a black comedy or a sensitive psychological drama. In other words, is it broad brush or or fine tipped brush? is um, the genre tradition it comes from. I mean, this is an Irish show, but it clearly comes from the tradition of the cozy British mystery, right? I mean, it, I, I think I like, and I think it's very important that it takes place not in a city, right? They're not in the streets of Dublin having these conversations. They're in this little village. Maybe it's named. I don't remember if the town is named, but they're in a little seaside village in Ireland. And so everybody knows everybody else's business. You know, it's all very small town and sweet. And so this side story of the two in- insurance investigators who are looking into what they believe may be a crime is different from a cop show. <laughs> you know, it's not a big city cop show with, you know, frowning cops knocking on the door. It's this dopey little local village mystery with a couple of bumbling insurance investigators trying to figure out whether to pay out a claim. And so that to me all points toward it being a black comedy where we're supposed to take in stride that, you know, something so ridiculous would happen. I mean, no one as smart as these five women are would actually conspire to do something so dumb at which they're obviously going to get caught because none of them have any idea what they're doing. So I guess I took the whole thing with a healthy grain of salt as part of this history of the cozy British TV murder mystery in a small town where you know, it's sort of arsenic and old lace style where things are going to be sicker and darker than the sweet surface of the, the show would have you believe. Mm. I mean, I kind of agree with both of you and slightly quibble with, with both of you because you, you're, you're faced with a challenge if you're going to make this show. It's based on underlying material from, I believe it was a Belgian show and then it might have been also a, I can't remember now, but it's it's been made before. But if, you know, starting with the MacGuffin, right, assuming that that's not the, in and of itself, the problem. Maybe you shouldn't start with the MacGuffin. You you have this problem of how to individuate the sisters, make them interesting figures, and then how to make him so toxic that you'll go along with it that that they're conspiring to kill him and apparently have succeeded in doing so. You know, you can't if you subtly portray him and humanize him and give him you know a third dimension. Your sympathy's not going to flow unabated to the sisters, and then you're in the realm of something, you know, truly dark and morally like complex. And that's not as a just as surely as a genre matter. That's not what this is. This is a dark comedy, and so to sort of balance the darkness and the comedy was was hard. I mean, I, I just this is one of those had me at hello shows. Um, I think the casting is brilliant. I think as you do get to know the sisters, they become, you know, very distinct from one another. I agree with Dana. It was a little disorienting at first. Midway through episode two, I had a sense of all of them. Um, You know, the relationship between the two bumbling insurance executives as as half-brothers, you know, incredibly funny and well-drawn. I mean, everything is comically precise in it. And the quibble I have, I guess, is here, is that... that, um, it's not only that I was able to make the leap with the show, I kind of saw what they were doing and had some respect for it, which is that, okay, if we're going to do this, if we're going to make him so flat that you, 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 fundamentally, you're sort of rooting for him to get justice. You feel like justice is this guy being taken from the earth at some level. You know, it's not that they sacrificed what was so precise and finely drawn about the rest of the writing. It's just that they gave him nothing. Like every single little thing that he does to belittle, abuse, uh, or intimidate his family is actually quite 
well and precisely drawn. The problem is that's all he does. And so as they begin to accumulate, it's all there is. And that's when it becomes flat in a way. But every single thing he does is actually quite, it's quite believable. The fact is, it's just unrelenting and and relatively, it's just continuous, right? I mean, there's just no kind of break. When he is present, he poisons everything that's happening. Just as a counterpoint, like the Breitbart view of Hunter Biden is like far more human and sympathetic <laughs> than the Sharon Horgan view of John Paul. But here's, you know, here's what I think Steve is trying to say, and I agree with him on this bit, is that whether or not John Paul, the murder victim, is a bad guy is never even slightly up in the air. But the ways in which he's a bad guy are really um, sneakily written, right? I mean, yeah. he's almost yes, abusive, right? He's he's passive aggressive, as Steve said. He's undermining. He's just this, he's this kind of bad dad who's kind of constantly critiquing his daughter's body and her weight. And there's this awful moment where he yeah. gives her a, a pro-life pin for her, her confirmation. He's just always pushing his ideology on others in this in this horribly creepy way. And so there were moments where I admired the subtlety of the writing about the ways in which yeah, he was horrible. But exactly. it was not it was not an ambiguity as to whether he was a worthy person. No, that's that's a good it's a good clarification. The the scenes in which he is horrible are just as subtle and almost realist in the like nuance of the characterization as the as the scenes of the sister's relationship. That's, you're totally right. That's what's so odd about it is like this buffoon cartoon is being delivered in this kind of like savvy realist tone and it's a little odd. Mm, yeah. Steve, do you know who Eve Hewson is who plays Becca? No, but I know that Bono forever more will be known as Eve Hewson's father. <laughs> That's all I was asking. I She's... <laughs> Man, she's fantastic, yeah. I think. Like I you, didn't you, know, yeah. Sometimes you, you cock an eyebrow when the famous person's kid gets apart, but um, she's she's got the juice. Um, but the other performance I wanted to single out, you flagged a little bit in, um, in your intro, but Grace, the sister who's not, you know, who, who is the put-upon, abused, essentially, wife of the prick, uh, gives just an amazing, I think, heartbreaking yes. performance as um, as sort of his prisoner. And there's a scene in episode four or five where in an effort at emotional independence, she tries to go to a dance class. And what happens to her at that dance class and how it confronts her with her own like lack of embodied selfhood is just so heartbreaking. It's one of the most heartbreaking physical performances I've seen in a while. Like she's just stunning. Uh, so I just wanted to shout out Anne-Marie Duff, who plays Grace on the show, who just is that, that performance gets more complicated and more fascinating and more heartbreaking episode by episode. Yeah. Here, here. Okay. It's bad sisters. It's on uh, Apple TV plus. I think we're all telling you definitely to watch it. We did with enthusiasm. If also with intelligent reservations, uh, I think it's a tremendous show. Love it. Check it out. All right, moving on. All right. Well, listen, before we go any further, this is typically in the show where we discuss business. Dana, what do we uh, what do we have this week? Stephen, the only item of business we have this week is to tell you about today's Slate Plus segment. This week, we're going to talk about the Emmys, which aired on Monday, unusually this week. So the night before we're taping, it's all fresh news now. Uh, Julia, now that she's working in entertainment journalism, watched the entire show of the Emmys. I've more sort of kept an eye on it from afar, and Stephen didn't watch it all. So we're going to do a full-on interview with Julia about this particular ceremony, highs, lows, winners, losers, and also the status of the Emmy ceremony and award ceremonies in general on television at a moment when they're struggling to survive. 
If you're a Slate Plus member, you'll hear that segment at the end of today's show. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, you can always sign up at slate.com slash culture plus. All right, on with the show. Okay, for our second segment, I'm going to mix it up a little bit instead of the usual sententious, overwritten introduction. I'm going to go with a series of questions. So Dana, just try, try to relax, but remember you're under oath here. Ms. Stevens, what is the headline of your Slate piece? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what they they called it. I think it's called... It, it, it's good. Instruct the witness to answer the question. Miss Stevens, <laughs> one more time. What is the headline of your slate piece? It was something I was not fond of as a headline. I think it was, I watched the Hunter Biden movie, so you don't have to. So you don't have to, am I correct? So you don't... <laughs> and that you is a universal you, correct? Anyone who read your piece is therefore exempt from having to watch, according to you... <laughs> <laughs> the Hunter Biden movie, correct? <laughs> and yet, what then happened, Ms. Stevens, when we did our topics call? And what did we end up with as a topic? And in order to fulfill my contractual obligation to the show, did I not, in fact, have to watch My Son Hunter? Your Honor, objection. <laughs> <laughs> I'm my own lawyer. I'm, I'm standing up for myself in court. It was not even my suggestion that we do this. I believe that one Julia Turner, Your Honor, was the one who suggested this as a topic, knowing I, uh, that I was writing on the movie. I did, and I will stand by it. This is such an interesting text. This is a much more interesting text than like half the movies we've seen in the last six months. Okay, order, order, order in the court. All right, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll try to get us back on track here. My son Hunter is from Breitbart. Since this is a not-movie to go with, they're not-news sites designed to turn Americans into not-citizens, I'll do a not-introduction, but sort of introduction. Here's what I know. It's a $2.5 million budget. It was shot in Serbia. And it's one long, onanistic fever dream, courtesy of the right-wing imagination. I, I just refuse to dignify it by describing the people involved in it as quote-unquote talent. So I'm not going to tell you who they were. I, I mean, if you guys want to, that's fine. Um, it, it, the, what's curious about this movie is that it's trying so hard to look and sound like mainstream fare, exactly like Fox or Breitbart to a degree, it has familiar production values. And as with the new shows, like the familiar cocking of the head and gestures and the voicings of a news anchor, while all while dripping poison into the public ear. Why don't we listen to a clip? The one we're going to listen to, it takes place in a limo, as much of the movie does, in which Joe Biden, who's running for president, talks with frequently lectures and chides his son, especially when it comes to jeopardizing his run for office. Let's, uh, let's listen. And I need you to tell me the God's honest truth. No lies. I don't care how bad it is, but I need you to tell me the truth. All right? Because if you don't tell me the truth, I can't fix it. And everything will be lost. Everything. Including my patience with you. Do you understand me, sir? Yes, sir. Your word is abide. My word is abide. I want to know everything that's on that laptop that can ruin my erection. <laughs> Every single detail. No need to be diplomatic now, so just give it to me straight. Selfies, naked selfies. Mm. Narcissistic, not scandalous. Dana, this is a not movie, but you're a you know very real movie critic. So I 
I guess I'll start with you. It, how do you even as a film critic approach a document like this? You know, writing on this movie was a real challenge because, as you say, it's not in some sense a, a movie, certainly in terms of its release pattern and the um, its availability to the general public and its promotional strategy. Yeah, in a way, writing on this movie is less being a movie critic than being a, a media critic. And that was the way I tried to approach it. But as you can hear from the, that clip, this movie is trying to do a bunch of stuff at once. It's delivering this kind of fevered conspiracy theory about the, the laptop and the information that's been hidden that this movie's going to uncover. But it's also in this dumb comedic realm, like, for example, the boing sound effect that you hear after the fake Joe Biden mistakenly says the word erection instead of election. That's kind of the level of this movie's humor in general. But yeah, it's kind of trying to do it all. It's trying to make you laugh at the ridiculousness of the Biden family while you also fear them as this international crime syndicate. It's trying, strangely, I want to get into this with Julia because I think she agrees with me. It's it's trying to humanize Hunter in a way that I really didn't expect, right? I mean, you would think that a movie called My Son Hunter that's all about the evil laptop from hell of Hunter Biden would make him look um, absolutely, you know, morally compromised. And I mean, while he seems like a very troubled figure in this movie, as played by Lawrence Fox, who I am going to acknowledge, who um, is a, an English actor who I think in a crazy way does a really good job humanizing Hunter Biden. Yeah. Um, he's a manipulated figure that you feel, I think, a lot of pity for. The movie spends a lot, a lot of time luxuriating in the debauchery of, of Hunter Biden, this sort of well-documented um, history of his crack addiction and, you know, stuff that Biden himself has written about in a memoir. But it doesn't seem to luxuriate it in a way that purely wants to, you know, humiliate and shame that character. I wonder what you think about that, Julia. Were you surprised by either his performance or the way the movie writes Hunter? It was more movie-like than I expected it to be. And it seemed to understand certain things about form and tone that... You know, it was much more watchable than I thought it was going to be. I mean, I, I can't say I would send people out to it, but as a as a document of like, you know, it can be edifying to watch Fox News, right, or Newsmax and sort of understand how the world is processed and what kinds of information is shared in what tone with the sets of people who, who consume news via, consume, think they are consuming news via those outlets, right? Um, this film as you pointed out in your review it's sort of attempting to to go for the like jaunty adam mckay style recent news explainer with performances and kind of gratuitous stripping scenes vibe um like even that musical cue in that clip we heard had a bit of sort of like um a bit of the big short a bit of uh you know kind of the Ocean's Eleven Soderbergh type jauntiness to it. Um, but as, as a formal project, this movie understands that we can't spend an hour or an hour and a half thinking about Hunter Biden without that. It's really hard to make him into a villain, given that he lost his mom and sister when he was two. Uh, then he lost his brother. Then he fell into addiction. Then he fell into a spiral of of, of chaos and that he's just he's just kind of a heart breaking fuck up uh that those are the points the bullet points of his story so the movie that for 90 minutes was just like here's a nefarious jerko scheming um 
doesn't quite make sense. And instead, the film presents him as a victim of Scheme and Joe, which its portrayal of Scheme and Joe is um, more broad and less human <laughs> and, uh, and uh, less plausible. But um, it works re- weirdly well, I thought. Um, and if you were the sort of person who did not follow the news particularly closely, wasn't really thinking about it very much, had heard something about Hunter Biden's laptop, then didn't hear about it for a while. I don't know, you might watch this and be like, huh, what's going on with that? What was that gotcha clip of Biden they played at the end? Like, it it seems like an effective piece of propaganda to me. I think you already have to be in the synergistic loop between Fox and the Fox audience or Breitbart and the Breitbart audience. Like you, Steve Bannon's already insinuated his way into your consciousness and your framing of reality. I think before you can really start, you know, abusing this particular drug, I don't think of this as a gateway. And one of the reasons is right up front, Black Lives Matter matters is demonized in the most cartoonish way. Like I think it may even be the opening scene of the movie. I mean, it's just, you know, incredibly hypocritical, you know, the, they burned whole U.S. cities to the ground. You know, they, you know, Portland is an incinerated crater. There's nothing left of it. Really? Like, I mean, you, that, that wouldn't, like, a somewhat informed, thinking, free-thinking person would watch that first scene and then proceed with the rest of it uh, at trust, on trust? I mean, I just, to me, that, I, this seemed to me co-written by the kind of conscious manipulations of the right-wing media as they've accumulated in really genuinely tragic ways in in the unconscious minds of um, a portion of the American audience that's overwhelmingly older and white. And, and it's that co-writing that creates these preposterously flat portrayals of virtually everybody in it except for Hunter. And the only reason Hunter is given any depth is that just sharpens the spear against its actual target, which is Joe, obviously. They don't give a shit about Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden's entirely instrumental and humanizing him is entirely instrumental because the more human Hunter is, the more the manipulations of his venal, preening, horrible, imperially egomaniacal and ambitious father um, you know, seem um, inhumane and degrading. So, I mean, you know, I just think it was, it was ridiculous, but I, I, that said, Julia, you you sent around, um, a New York magazine piece. That's a deep dive on this story. It's not as though there's nothing there, right? Like that's where the actual difference between quote unquote, our side and quote unquote, their side actually does come is that our news organizations are real news organizations and our capacity for open-mindedness involves an actually open mind. If there's a factual basis for the accusation, for example, that Hunter, one of the reasons Hunter is such a miserable, quote-unquote, fuck-up or fail-son or whatever, is that he essentially has been the member of the family who's sacrificed to you know, a series of corrupt acts meant to enrich, you know, a public servant, if that's true. And the reporting doesn't demonstrate that yet, but it's not as though there isn't something to follow up on of substance. The problem, of course, is that it's so fucking clouded over now by conscious production of misperception on the part of a portion of the electorate. It's And by the way, the lap, the, the actual digital data itself has been overwritten upon 
and manipulated and corrupted, it is not that easy to tell what actually originally originates from Hunter Biden and what doesn't. Nonetheless, are you telling me the Washington Post, if it tomorrow could definitively report on Burisma being an attempt to send millions of dollars into the Biden's pocket and that also demonstrably corrupted U.S. policy on Ukraine, you're telling me they wouldn't report that? That's crazy. And, you know, I, I, I think they would. I, I, and Dana, I just have to point out one thing that I laughed and laughed and laughed my head off at, which is towards the end of the movie, this also preposterously drawn, I guess, stripper figure who Hunter has something like resembling a real relationship in the movie turns out to like, she suddenly becomes their version of woke and realizes this, you know, grotesque conspiracy that she's up against. And in all of these like crudely drawn, like sub cartoonish scenes, she like, you know, record, gets some recording of him basically admitting everything. And she takes it to some journalist friend she knows. Well, she phones him up and the guy answering the phone on the other end is like Jimmy Stewart in the Philadelphia story. He's like an <laughs> anachronism on upon an anachronism. He's like bespectacled. He's at a fucking manual typewriter and he's wearing togs out of yeah, the 1940s. Yeah, he needs a press 40s. card in his fedora like, is what he's missing. I was like, maybe they have an like, incredibly good sense of humor, subtle sense of humor over at Breitbart. They're like, this is the dump. The dump shits who are watching this movie don't even know what a journalist in 2022 looks like. You know, and it's like, wink, wink. You know, we know how dumb the people watching this are. But that, on a more serious note, that just shows like, the distance from which the average viewer of this movie is presumed to exist from actual journalists, actual people who actually hold power. Nobody in this movie talks like their real-life equivalent would, or much less looks like them. But, but Steve, part of what you put your finger on... So the, the New York Magazine piece that I sent around is a, a relatively new feature by a couple of their reporters that's sort of looking holistically and with a kind of narrative angle at the story of Hunter Biden's laptop what happened to it, what it actually is, how the data was passed from hand to hand, what hay has been made of it, um, and and what actual grist for investigation or potential problematic behavior by Hunter or even potentially Joe Biden himself might or might not be in it. And it, it was useful to me as someone who had not followed all the non-narrative work that has been done by real journalists about this over the last few years um, to kind of read it all in one place in the same 24 hours in which I watched this very odd document of the mind of the right. But, you know, fundamentally, the movie's main thrust is that the mainstream media is keeping you from the truth. Another recurring uh, theme is that uh, Joe the Joe of the movie is, you know, a, a lecherous hair sniffer. So in addition to being a doddering fool and a criminal mastermind, he's also a creepy lech. Um, but if you, you know, are Republican or Republican leaning or pro-Trump, you notice like, oh, wow, the media kind of covered the this gross behavior and then it kind of ignored it and let it drop. Um, or, you know, you the the movie also makes a lot of hay of the fact that the not very clear hey doesn't actually really explain the timeline but when news of the laptop first broke in uh the new york post a bunch of the platforms twitter and facebook kind of cracked down on information sharing about it because it was so close to the election and there was a sense that the information on the laptop couldn't be verified since then it, 
become, seems increasingly like some of the information on the laptop probably is real. And the, you know, the jury's still out on that a bit. Um, but this, the sense, you know, in the same way that folks on the left look back at 2016 and think, why the hell did the media spend so much time on Hillary Clinton's emails? The notion that there's a subset of people who look back at the media coverage of the 2020 election and think, why the hell did everybody ignore Hunter Biden's laptop and what the hell is really going on with it? When in fact, parts of it were real and maybe there are some stories there. Like that's an understandable thing for people of this political persuasion to seize upon. What the movie completely leaves out in its propagandic approach to all this is that in fact, many major media outlets have followed these threads and and covered bits and pieces of the Burisma story, the laptop story in in various modes. There have been some, some investigative work by both the Washington Post and the New York Times. Like it is a story that, mainstream journalists are pursuing. It's true that it hasn't become like the main thread on cable news. And I think the the kind of confusion of cable news with journalism broadly is, is, is one of the problematic delusions, like really finding the actual truth takes time. Yeah, Julia, when I read that, uh, that long reported piece that you sent around for us about, um, about the, the uncovering of the laptop and the, the status of the investigation into it, all I could think of was, I want the, the Hunter Biden movie about the guy who found the laptop, the Delaware Mac repairman who found himself with this, with this hot item on his hands and was suddenly getting calls from Steve Bannon and Rudy Giuliani and God knows who. That's a movie that I would watch. Brad well, Pitt in a Coen Brothers film? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Brad Pitt. Perfect for a a Brad Pitt dumb role, which is always his best. Uh, There's so much more to say about this movie, Steve, but I don't think we can get into it all in this segment. That's true. And what I would say is your piece is for all my glibness up top is terrific. And people should go check it out. Dana, remind me again, what's the title of it? (laughs) It's it's called I Watched the Hunter Biden Movie So You Don't Have To. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we'll leave it there. It's up on Slate. Uh, Let's move along. All right. Well, we're joined by June Thomas. She's uh, joining us from Edinburgh, Scotland. June, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, Stephen. Uh, Of course, you're here to talk about Queen Elizabeth II, the longest reigning monarch in the history of England. Um, She was all of 25 when she uh, ascended to the throne in 1952. That covers, her reign covers then, I think arguably virtually the entire post-war era through uh, the post-war rationing, you never had it so good to Thatcher and Brexit. Um, June, let's talk a little bit about just what you're experiencing and hearing both inside your own self and uh, on the ground there in the UK. It's interesting that I'm in Scotland. I'm now living in Edinburgh for all of not even three weeks um, because until about 20 minutes uh, before we started recording, you know, we were the center of the world's attention, I guess, or whoever's paying attention's attention, um, because she died at Balmoral uh, instead of Operation London Bridge, Operation Unicorn kicked in, which meant that, okay, if she died in Scotland, there would be a slightly different procedure. And so the eyes of the world have been here, or so it's felt. And there's a sense just for me personally, that that's kind of cool. But it's also disturbing because there have been these ridiculous arrests uh, in a in a world where it really seems that even people 
you know, you can just sit it out. You don't have to get in the middle of it, especially since this is, you know, a death, a period of mourning. But the fact that people were arrested merely for holding signs, obviously, that is incredibly disturbing. And so it's not all, oh, hey, it's great. Isn't this a wonderful event? Like that is definitely a very negative situation. June, since you kick off talking about the the protests and the fact that there's there's a, some some sort of question even in the streets around you as to how the queen should best be mourned, I mean, I, I hate to take this immediately to the to the level of the response to the queen's death as opposed to the intrinsic meaning of the event for England and the world, but it just seems to a huge degree now that that anything having to do with the monarchy is immediately going to turn into a referendum on whether that monarchy should continue to exist or not. And I wonder both how that has struck you personally and how you've felt about the social media response to the Queen's death, which it seems to me, I mean, I've basically tried to keep off social media the last few days because this has just turned into such blanket coverage. It's all you can hear about, right? I mean, either someone's somewhat saccharine post about mourning or someone else's, you know, dancing on the queen's grave kind of post and then the fight that breaks out after that. And I'm wondering whether you think, first of all, that that is intensifying to a point where, you know, the conversation is going to go beyond social media um, and, uh, you know, just, just how you've experienced the, you know, public in the larger sense of the virtual public's response to this event. Yeah, it's tricky because, the protests do, as you say, like reminders that this is a very contested institution. Um, there seems to be this, even for unlike the BBC, which even today is still, you know, it's the official voice. Uh, and so it's quite respectful, you know, perhaps a little bit more respectful than it needs to be. But, you know, there will be some sort of admission, perhaps, that there may be a larger discussion of the role of royalty or the purpose of royalty or the size of royalty or just, you know, essentially some existential discussion. Uh, but then there is a kind of a pause and then they say, but for the moment, we are, you know, celebrating the life of a woman who, and this is, I think, universally accepted even among those of us who, you know, have no love whatsoever for the institution and for the role of the monarchy will say this was a woman who worked her ass off and you know we live in a time where work is the thing that we all universally praise and so you know there's there's that kind of feeling of well we'll we'll kick that down the road a little bit and then at the same time you are reminded of the great unfairness of life and, you know, just all of the, the ways that royalty also means uh, privilege and establishment when one of the people who was arrested in Edinburgh was arrested for yelling at Prince Andrew, as he somehow is still referred to, for um, being a paedophile when, you know, that doesn't actually seem like that is such a contested um, you know, statement. And he was, the man who yelled this was arrested and Andrew does not seem to have suffered uh, any significant consequences beyond, beyond having to walk behind his mother's body um, in a suit rather than the uniforms that are so beloved by members of the royal family. So, you know, and he actually did serve, of course, in the Falklands. So, you know, th there's all of that. And then there is what people say, which is really inspiring of, I feel like I'm, you know, living history, which we all are every day. But there is 
this feeling that this is a really significant moment. And, you know, you don't want to take a dump on that because, uh, you know, that's a feeling that we should all have all the time, I think. One thing that's been striking to me in the coverage I've encountered is how moved and respectful a wide swath of generations seem to be. And something that's cropped up in a lot of the commentaries is just this final sense of unlinking from empire, which, you know, you might think as a rabble-rousing American, everyone's like, woohoo, we're done with the empire. But there seems like a bit of mournfulness or melancholy about losing that direct living link to the status loss, the kind of global status loss that came with the end of empire, and almost a sense that the queen like helped preserve the nation's dignity in face in the face of its the dissolution of its imperialist ambitions mm-hmm. um and it sort of left people up and down the political spectrum kind of like oh man remember when we were the big kahuna gosh <laughs> that was this is a direct quote from the bbc um <laughs> gosh that was that was nice um and and it made me realize, I was speaking once to a British friend who was talking about how history is taught um, in, in the British system. And essentially, he was like, yeah, your revolution isn't like the major event in our history. You know, like the American Revolution is like a sidebar, like one of those little like colored boxes on the edge. That's like, oh, and then those pesky people were like, see ya, but whatever, onward march Britain. Um, and... I guess I just, I would love to hear your take on, you know, living in America, processing culture in America right now. There is so much challenging of our own founding myths. And it made me realize that I don't feel like I totally understand how British culture processes the dissolution of its potency. Yeah, I think here the talk really is about the Commonwealth, you know, the Commonwealth of Nations in part because the Queen was a really big believer in and kind of proselytizer for the Commonwealth. And over time, it would be like there were 52 members, there were 40 members. You know, it, there's a, just a consciousness that it's a shrinking uh, organization. And I don't think that it's been about loss of power or loss of status or loss of empire. I mean, that ship has sailed. And I really don't think that other than, you know, perhaps a fringe of people, there's a great deal of kind of constant mourning for that or contemporaneous mourning for that. Um, But just a feeling that, you know, maybe related to Brexit for, you know, for those who um, celebrate, um, you know, that, that our world is shrinking a little bit, that it's harder for uh, you know, what was once um, even just you know, people from the European Union, um, you know, people from the Commonwealth uh, to kind of represent themselves or to, to see themselves in this country or to, to move to this country, to live in this country that, you know, that they're supposedly, you know, part of this system, you know, living under the Queen's uh, bounty or reign or whatever it is. Um, and yeah, I don't think people will be really pushing to, you know, to have King Charles on their notes. So, yeah, it does feel significant that it's a moment, uh, you know, a moment is changing, history is changing, a moment is passing. 
this doesn't seem to be about um, a loss of power, but just like, oh, wow, this this will be different. Um, that it's it's too bad that the world is shrinking in a way. Yeah, I, I, June, June, I agree with you that, that that that's the emphasis. That sounds right to me. Also, in part, because with all due respect to the process of decolonialization, which allowed for national self-determination on the part of peoples who'd been under a boot, you know, for uh, uh, centuries, which I, I'm not minimizing at all, but the but the if you I, my sense of it is that the real sort of diminishment of national ego occurred when after the Second World War it was evident that the United States was the you know global hegemon and clearly the quote unquote leader of the free world and both the UK and the continent were going to exist under our nuclear umbrella and on and on and on. I mean, there was just a, a, a you know, a complete reversal of roles and the acceptance of sec- secondary status militarily and financially, you know, Bretton Woods and on and on and on. And at that point, the English, in my interpretation, begin doing a, by and large, ex- like exquisite job of performing and marketing Englishness to a nostalgic world yes right yes. that's the consumer yeah. what the principal consumer i mean the reason why the royal family is such a cash cow is essentially tourism right it means the rest of the world consumes this nostalgia including people from the former colonies right it's like a it's like a very interesting form of comfort that one derives from somebody else's venerable tradition even as it's associated with placing the rest of the world into a secondary or subordinate status. Um, and I, in that sense, I think of the Queen as of a piece with Penny Lane and James Bond and Harry Potter in some sense, but with this difference that even though she took the throne just as television was becoming a paramount medium, um, she herself, her early life, preceded the rise of TV. And I think this is one of those things that's so big, so pervasive, and so obvious we can't see it. That 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 to be the final generation, as for example, my parents were, of people who fully be- became fully formed human beings before the rise of television meant they had a different consciousness than everyone who came after that. And I'm not hierarchizing it or make placing a value judgment on it. It's simply an observation. And for someone like me, who's just at the beginning of television becoming totally pervasive to consciousness, who had parents who were pre-TV, I have a nostalgia for the queen that's related to the idea of a bearing and being in the world that is non-televisual, that then translates beautifully onto television and the nostalgia of people who want to believe in that kind of dignity and continuity. So in that sense, I think what I project as a kind of sentimental longing onto this figure, who otherwise means very little to me, is just a sense of of dignity and self-possession and that she exists apart from the cameras that turn her into the icon. That's her iconographic power to me. And that, I suspect, for better and for worse... Even Charles lacks to a degree, and then whoever comes after Charles will lack almost completely. On the question of Charles and whether the monarchy survives, I was struck. The the official confirmation I saw came via tweet. I think it was a tweet linking to an official pronouncement of whatever the next step in Operation Unicorn was. But it was so striking to me that it was the same tweet, not even a thread that was like, the queen is dead 
the king and queen consort are on their way to wherever. It's like there was no public breath of her death that did not immediately supplant with a king. And it just felt like they didn't want to leave any time for anybody to be like, I mean, she had a great run. We sure we still need one. Maybe yeah. Charles isn't the guy. <laughs> like, Even Law and Order has to come to an end at some point. You know, I mean, the show, not the uh, not the institution, because um, that's already happening in America. But um, yeah, you know. But what is that? Why is the phrase so famous? The Queen is dead. Long live the King. You know. I mean, yeah. That so it was. So it always will be. But especially now, yeah. Okay. Well, June, it, we've gone over. We could talk about this more, but it's great, great having you on the show. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. Okay, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you uh, What do you have for us today, Steve? I'm just I'm mainly sharing my endorsement this week just to brag that I finally finished it. When you listen to a really long audiobook, it's just a satisfying yet sad feeling when you get to the end of it and leave that world and that voice that's been in your ears for so long. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners are audiobook fans, so I like to recommend uh, audiobooks once in a while. And the one that I just sadly finished. Extra sadly, because this is my last book I had not read by this author, was Shirley by Charlotte Bronte, which is the um, second to last. It was the follow-up to Jane Eyre, the second novel that Charlotte Bronte published in her lifetime. And I had never read it because I guess it's sort of considered the the black sheep of Charlotte Bronte novels. It's the only one that's narrated in the third person. It was not very well received at the time, whereas Jane Eyre had been a giant smashing success. Um, And it's a really unusual and strange book. Maybe not my favorite of her books, but an extremely interesting one to listen to, especially on audio, because it's her most multivocal book. It's it's told by an omniscient narrator who sort of dips in and out of various characters' consciousnesses. It's a social novel that tells the story of industrial riots in, in England at the turn of the 19th century, so a little bit before the time it was written in. And it's just got this huge cast of characters with just a whole village of people and rectors and aristocrats and work people running in and out and two female um, protagonists who sort of vie for both um, the, the prime status as narrator and the, um, the love object of one of the, the main male leads. Anyway, it's a huge sprawling story that obviously I can't summarize here, but it's really, really great read in your ears by a reader named Georgina Sutton, who manages to get everything down to this sort of men's voices, the women's voices, the Yorkshire accents, the Southern accents. She's a wonderful, wonderful reader who gets all the nuances of this novel. And especially if you're interested in the Brontes and how all their careers developed, you have to listen to Shirley. It's a key piece of the puzzle. So Shirley on Audible, read by Georgina Sutton. Oh, that is magnificent. Okay, you have put me onto it and uh, I'm going to follow up. Uh, Julia, what about you? I've got two endorsements. The first is possibly the silliest thing I've ever endorsed which, you know, is saying something. But there is a kind of like fancy salon style shampoo company called Secha Juan. I don't actually know how you say it. I've never said it out loud. It's S-A-C-H-A-J-U-A-N. And they have a number of shampoos and conditioners that are nice. They also sell for $17 something called the Secha Juan scalp brush. And it's basically this like little round hockey puck shaped brush with a little handle and then maybe 12 conical rubber points on it. And if while you are shampooing your hair, you like rub this scalp brush over your scalp, you have the exact same feeling as when you go get your hair cut at the salon and the very strong fingered hair washing person like really like 
abrades your scalp with their vigorous scrubbing, which if you are like me is a sensation you very much enjoy, but I've only been able to experience like, you know, however often you get your hair cut at the salon, which if you're me is hardly ever. Now you can have that sensation in your very own shower for $17 with the Sage Adwan scalp brush. You're welcome, everybody. I think you should all be grateful that I am not too embarrassed to endorse such a ridiculous thing, but it's truly an additional pleasure in your life should you should you be so inclined. Um, my second endorsement is that uh, a, a marvelous author is coming to Los Angeles this weekend. Her name is Dana Stevens. She's written a wonderful book about Buster Keaton, and she's going to be uh, talking and reading from her book at the Village Well Books and Coffee in Culver City, which is a great bookstore, a new bookstore, a woman-owned bookstore, happens to be owned by a Culture Fest fan. So Dana will be there. I will be there. It's this coming Saturday uh, at 5 p.m. at Village Well Books. Ah, oh, thanks for the plug, Julia. I was wondering how to get that on the show without hogging up a bunch of for, for endorsement, self-endorsement. But yes, I will be in LA this weekend for that and another event. On Sunday, I'm hosting a, a screening of a Buster Keaton movie. So if anybody wants more information about either of those two, you can write us at culturefest at slate.com and I'll send you the info. Uh, that's great. Uh, uh, all right, I'm going to endorse... First of all, I'm just going to return to Transit of Venus, the novel by Shirley Hazard. I've been reading it over several months on and off. It's it sunk in now. That is one of the best novels I've ever read. Dana, I forgot if I asked you. Have you ever read that? Mm, nope, have not read. It is such a great book. But my actual endorsement is an interview with Stephen Shapin, the philosopher of science at Harvard, who I think is just a, a national treasure and a real deserves to be considered an institution. It's in the Chronicle of Fire Ed. We'll link to it. And the title of it is wonderful. It's from a quote. It's from something Shapin says in the course of the interview, there's no shame in being a hack. And Shapin's just a person who's mastered the philosophy of science and history of science as someone who started out as a serious scientist. So he knows of what he speaks, but writes with total clarity and simplicity, lucidity, directness, no pretension at all about really interesting abstruse subjects. And a late I think relatively late in his career, he'd been a wine connoisseur, it sounds like, most of his adult life, but he began thinking seriously about what that meant in philosophical terms. And actually, it's it's just it's so it's so interesting to hear him talk about that, because on the one hand, he, he's got a sense of humor about life and himself, so it's, it's unserious in some fun way, or it's fun and whatever, but it's actually serious because it, it, it addresses these really deep philosophical questions about taste, judgment, objectivity, and subjectivity. And just very quickly, he says, it's actually can be serious because if you're, quote, interested in objectivity, you should be interested in subjectivity. You should be interested in the how they do it question. How is objective knowledge made and portrayed? How are subjective judgments made and portrayed? Um, It's a great interview. The man's just He's just an extraordinary philosophical and, and literary, in my estimation, talent. Once again, that's an interview with Stephen Shapin, the Harvard philosopher of science in the Chronicle of Higher Education. We will uh, link to it on our website. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Dana. Thank you. Thanks, Stephen. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by Nicholas Patel. 
Our producer is Cameron Drews. Our production assistant is Nadira Goff. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Hello and welcome to the Slot Plus segment of the Slate Culture Gab Fest. Today, we're talking about the Emmys, demoted from a main segment to a plus, possibly a signal of the uh, scale and scope of awards shows and their diminishing position in the American cultural landscape. We could also title this segment, Julia Turner, Watch the Emmys, so you don't have to. So we're going to switch up our format today. Steve is going to host Plus and Grill Me uh, the Emmy's guinea pig about what happened at last night's show and what was interesting about it. Uh, I just want to say for the record, too, this is the very first that was new to me is is making up for being underprepared by uh, asking a lot of um, leading questions. Um, that's a joke. Anyway, all right. So um, <laughs> in all seriousness, I do, I do have a question I'd love to hear an answer to, which is that you hold a interesting editorial position um, uh, in general, but especially so confronted with these old kind of, you know, uh, venerable media institutions that resonate less by the year. And so you're obliged to report on them. They they ought to be taken seriously by the Los Angeles Times and others. Um, And yet I have to imagine that it's not... I remember staying up for the Emmys, the Grammys, the Tonys, much less the Oscars. I mean, these award shows were, you know, they had a kind of, um, you know, appointment viewing feeling to them. Uh, Things happened last night. Awards were handed out. uh, White Lotus, uh, Succession, Ted Lasso, uh, very big winners. Michael Keaton for Dopesick. I mean, a lot of, you know, I mean, it seems important that these people got recognized and these shows got recognized. Is it? And how just editorially do you do you treat it? How do you approach it? I mean, the way I think about it is that the story of whether awards shows will continue to matter is kind of the main story. Um, a secondary story is what is the state of the underlying medium being celebrated slash scrutinized at this award show? Uh, and, you know, maybe third... <laughs> Who, who are the governing bodies that give out these awards and what is their legitimacy and authority? Like, those are all three interesting frameworks to look at these shows from, um, along with just the particulars of who wins and who doesn't and why and what the mechanics of the campaigns were. And, um, you know, they, they also can still be kind of multi-hour variety shows that offer some entertainment to a set of people who want to see glitz and glam gathered. Um, even if the num- that number of people seems to dwindle year by year. Uh, so there's plenty there's plenty of grist here, but certainly there is a sense in each of these shows as time passes and in my years in this role of just desperate <laughs> plate spinning. <laughs> like just desperate, please watch this, please, we matter, please, please. Um, and certainly last night's Emmys had its fair share of that. I mean, the the opening number was bizarre in its own way, and we can discuss that if you like. But right after the opening number, they brought out Oprah to basically say that Emmys are important. Like she just had a declarative 
opening fusillade of like Emmys matter and they are important and you should want one and they're very hard to win. <laughs> it was just very protests too much. Yeah, Dana, I, you know, it used to be that the best picture was the award of awards and it had the power not only to make a movie into a commercial hit, it appeared to change. I've always felt like it changed the way you thought about the movie, right? This is a best picture winner. And I don't know that that survives much scrutiny if you go back and look at who won and who didn't won. Maybe they get it wrong more often than not. But the aura, earned or unearned, seems to have drained off largely. What's what's your attitude here? I mean, I guess I never felt that. So I don't feel any luster being rubbed off of an institution that always kind of seemed fraudulent. Yeah, I can never yeah. remember what the best picture is from year to year. I can't right now tell you what the best picture was last year. And I sort of long ago just decided that unless I professionally have to watch an award ceremony, I won't watch it because of exactly what Julie was talking about, just that kind of jostling sense of please, please pay attention to us. But I do keep an eye on award shows through social media or just reading reporting on them the next day just to see whether my own personal faves got a moment in the sun or not. And uh, I, as we've talked about many times in uh, segments about awards, I don't exactly shake my fist at the gods if that person doesn't get recognized. <laughs> if anything, I kind of, I guess this is very Gen X of me, but I regard it as a feather in the cap of that show or that performer or performance. It's sort of like, ah, eh, too good to get an award. I knew it. And the too good to get an award, I knew it this year, was Better Call Saul. I mean, what the hell? That show just concluded, right? I guess it will still be eligible technically next year because the last six episodes aired after the deadline for next year's Emmys. But obviously, this was the year it just concluded. It's on everyone's mind. It's the first time that Ray Seahorn has been nominated for Best Supporting Actress. I'm not sure if it's the first time other um, nominations have happened in that category. It's gotten some before. But it won nothing and got no recognition. So that is not me shaking my fist at the sky. Why didn't the Emmys recognize my fave? It's just sort of a shrug, like, there you go. Um, that's not to say that many, many worthy things were not awarded. And it seems, Julia, like there were some pleasant surprises in the awards that were given. I mean, even though I was not the biggest fan of Squid Game when we talked about it on this show, I mean, you certainly could not fault that show for not being original and you could not fault it for not being incredibly well acted. So seeing it get recognition in those categories seems like it would have been exciting. Yeah, um, the Squid Game win was a bit of an upset. There were a few stunning upsets. I mean, the one moment that made awards shows seem worthwhile last night was the upset win of Cheryl Lee Ralph for Best Supporting Actress for a Comedy. Um, she plays Barbara Howard on Abbott Elementary. There had been, I think, a lot of uh, thinking that the woman who plays the principal, which is sort of a scene-stealing comedic role on that show um, was a front runner and Charlie Ralph, who's had a decades long career in theater and film and television um, and is, is just an amazing performer, but maybe one who'd been flying under the radar one for this much more controlled, nuanced performance. Um, and she stood up to the microphone and belted out this song, like didn't say a word, just started to sing. And we should listen to a clip of it here because it was an incredible moment. I am an endangered species, but I sing no victim song. I am a woman, I am an artist, and I know 
I mean, I maybe I'm a chump, but I have tears in my eyes watching it a second time. I yeah. think it's I think that's just stunning. I mean, just to have the presence in that moment as a surprise winner. The, the song she sang is Endangered Species by Diane Reeves, which is n- not a song I was familiar with and, and just lands incredibly in that moment. I mean, she was not expected to win. She was like not the runner, not the long shot, not, you know, she, she, she was a real surprise win to have the presence and composure to do that with your time at the mic. And she goes on to talk about believing in yourself and and sort of doubt Um and she's only the second black woman ever to win supporting actress in a comedy after Jackie Harry, who tweeted uh, nicely about Ralph's victory last night. Um, you know, at their best, what these shows are, are celebrations of work and achievement, right? Like, and talent, you know, and people working hard to entertain us. And it's easy to sort of sneer at them as uh, fatuous cosseted celebrities and their achievements and endeavors is kind of stupid and flimsy in this dark and dismal world. But, you know, so many people last night sort of thanked their parents for believing in them, for kind of building in them the confidence to pursue a path that was unorthodox and unexpected. Um, So, you know, I don't know. It's like sports. Why do we watch sports? It's like human achievement is interesting to humans. And the way humans process their achievements and their their losses is interesting to humans. And these are gigantic spectacles in which we can do that. And sometimes you get a moment like this where a woman who's been doing incredible work for decades, you know, and who has not yet had this kind of recognition um, gets a moment to shine and then absolutely does. So honestly, this one moment like redeemed the whole show. And there were a few other things along those lines. Um, Lizzo's win um, for the reality competition show for a show that she produced that was essentially a show kind of about self-acceptance um, was also a surprise. And she she gave a great speech and set of comments about it and about the power of representation and seeing yourself on television. Um so there were a few moments like that that sort of redeemed the whole concept, <laughs> but um, then there were a lot of other moments as well. Yeah, Julian, I'm gl- really glad that you played that that clip for us, and I'm going to go back and watch the speech that she makes afterward. But I was was going to say, and should have amended my comments earlier about saying that I only watch award shows kind of when I have to professionally. That inevitably there's going to be some moment, if not several moments like that, that may not make the entire investment of hours of your evening into this long ceremony worthwhile, but certainly makes it worthwhile to look it up later and keep an eye on what happened. And you're right that for all that these moments may seem like bloated spectacles as as a as a televisual experience for as a professional experience for those people that are on stage and that are nominated, it obviously is going to be one of the pinnacles of their career, even to be nominated for an award that big, much less to win it. So I don't at all mean to demean, you know, the, what it means to honor the careers of, of your fellow practitioners of an art form. And that seems like the meaningful part of these these spectacles. The, the sad part, though, is just that so little of those many hours of the spectacle are, are focused on, on those meaningful moments within it. I mean, that clip is just like standing. Oh, it's as moving. It's, it's, it's not silly at all that you'd watch it twice and be brought to tears. It's incredible. And it, it just, it's not only that I think both of you have spoken really beautifully to what it is just to have an industry honor itself in a honorable way, right? Like, it's like, it is exactly that. These people 
they're not just famous, right? They're actually incredibly talented and they belong to a community of peers. And it's the com- the fact that it's the community of peers jealously in many instances acknowledging that some people have done superior work that's moving but that it also that clip vindicates live tv right and the reason it does is that wasn't canned it wasn't cutesy it wasn't gimmicky it wasn't searching for clicks it was it was a you know to the extent one can judge these things at a distance it was a a very true moment that came from a a deep place not only to see her do it, but to see how it was felt in the room, right? It was just flooring the people, blowing away the people in that room. And that's like live TV. That's true. There's no substitute for it. Yeah. I mean, one other thing that was proclaimed from the stage last night is that Abbott Elementary did not spend the usual millions of dollars trying to win Emmys for itself and instead donated those funds to... um, Public, getting supplies for public school teachers, which is interesting, given that it all it did still win uh, several Emmys, um, and you know, I, the the only thing I would say is that yes, you can convene these moments that are electric. Meanwhile, half the people give speeches that suck. Like, get your shit together. These these awards shows are endangered. Like, figure your shit out. Plan what you're going to say. Like, I'm just the sort of like stuttering micro machine lack of gravity to some of the speeches last night was depressing. Like this whole thing is kind of hanging on for dear life. And I think our, some of our performers need to pull it together. Um, And I will also say the writers of American variety shows need to pull it together somehow inexplicably, even though Kenan Thompson is like clearly the loveliest man in the world and a great comedic performer, this show opened with like a long, dance montage like the notion that you would stare down the declining ratings of the american awards show and be like i know 10 minutes of dance and it was like satire dance basically it was like different dance routines to famous television theme songs there was a brady bunch dance and a friends dance and a living single dance and a game of thrones dance and the point of the dance seemed to be aren't dance montages ridiculous not wow these dancers are amazing like it's not like you you think keenan or you know it's not like j-lo was hosting and it was like actually supposed to wow you like the whole thing was a joke but it was like a 10 minute dance joke it might not have been 10 minutes it was probably like four minutes it felt like 20 minutes um anyway yeah in addition to the non-sharily ralph speeches at the other end of the spectrum, I would also say to America's variety writers, like, I, I have great sympathy for the pressure they are under, but like, what? What was that? That was insane. Mm. Uh, and the ratings are not yet out this morning, but I, I would guess that they are not up from last year. Yeah, the problem no. with these shows is they can't figure out what people want to see and why they tune into the shows. And there seems, I know on the movie side, I can't really speak for the Emmys because I've rarely watched them, but... There seems to be this anxiety that just watching people get awards is not interesting enough for the audience, when in fact, that is precisely what the audience tunes in for, by definition. I really don't understand the psychology of minimizing that part of the show in in exchange for these strange, bloated entertainment numbers that no one cares about. I do think that actually one of the reasons that people are so confused about this and keep going back and forth is that the Grammys sort of navigated this transition years ago, and they basically only give out 
I don't know, like eight awards on the Grammys. And it's basically just a gigantic pop concert where they do a stage concert and have all kinds of crazy collabs and they make it sort of a fun musical spectacle. So I think there is this sense of, uh, and the Grammys ratings have not declined as precipitously as the other shows. So I think that is one of the tensions is like, maybe we should be the Grammys, but what would the Grammys be? I think Dan Coyce, somebody at Slate wrote a piece years ago about how to fix the Oscars that was like, you should just have an acting competition and like put everybody up on stage and like make them extemporaneously act from a script they'd never seen before and sort of prove it <laughs> in the fashion of the musicians. And and um, honestly, compared to the dance montage, like I would take it. I would take it. All right. Well, that was very edifying. Let's, let's wrap it there. Uh, Julia, you want to uh, talk us out of this? Sure. Thank you so much, Slate Plus members, for listening to this bonus segment of our show and for supporting us and Slate and all of its work. Uh, We'll see you next week.